imagine we've been on a plane ever since we got back from Christmas break. And Paul has kind of taken this plane up to the highest heights of the gospel or Christianity or what God has done through Jesus. And we have seen some of the most breathtaking scenery. Stuff like there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's extinct. doesn't roam the earth anymore for Christians. It's gone. Things like uh, God has severed your family ties with that dysfunctional family of Adam that we're all born into. And he's planted you into a new family as a son or a daughter. Things like if God is for you, who can be against you? Things like what Paul ended with last week. Scenery like uh, nothing can or will separate you from God's love in Jesus. But then it's like the pilot doesn't ever get on the radio to say, fasten your seatbelts. It's like we just go from this beautiful, peaceful breathtaking flight in sunny skies and then without any notice or warning from the cockpit, boom! Turbulence. This is the first verse of chapter 9. Here's the turbulent transition. He says, I am, I'm telling you the truth that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I was separated from Jesus almost so that my friends would know him. So there's the turbulence. That's the whoa. He just said this amazing stuff, and now you've just said you have unceasing anguish because your friends, other Jews, Paul's talking about, have rejected Jesus. This is where he picks up after that. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for they, the Jews, are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children just because they're descended from Abraham. But, as the scripture says, through Isaac, your descendants will be named. We'll make sense of this later. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of the God, who are children of God. It's the children of the promise or children of faith who are regarded as true descendants or children. For this is the word of the promise. Paul's about to give us examples. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, and she had conceived twins by our father Isaac. Here's the point. And though those twins weren't even born yet, they hadn't done a single thing good or bad. So that God's purpose concerning his choice or election would stand, that it's not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to Sarah, the mom, your older son will serve the younger. For Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he who says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I will have mercy on. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So salvation, he's saying, doesn't depend on man's will or man's effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You'll say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? On the contrary, who are we, O men, or O O little humans, to talk back to God? Should the the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece for honorable use and the other for common use? And so what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known... Endured with much patience, 
these vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared before him for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only among from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Now, here's a, a little tidbit from chapter 11. In the same way, then, there has come to be at the present time a remnant, or a, a group that's being saved according to God's gracious choice. For salvation is by grace. It is by grace. Uh, if it is not by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, it is no longer grace. Let me pray for us, and there's a lot to be explained there that I'm going to try to do in a very brief amount of time. I know that was confusing. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that you would come tonight, that you would help us do what I've just said we're going to do, but we actually can't do apart from you. There is a lot here, a lot to be unraveled, a lot to be made sense of, uh, and there's also our own hearts. We are frazzled people. Today's been a frazzled day for many of us. It has been for me. Um, we need you. And so we pray that you would come. Make sense of us. Make sense of this passage. Make sense of yourself to us. We ask it in your name. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Thanks for getting through that with me. Like I said, I understand that's a tall order uh, to try to understand and wrap our head around what's going on there. So... If you're a Christian, you probably have reached the point in your life, even if you've been a Christian for a tiny amount of time, where you've begun to wonder, why do some of my friends embrace Jesus or become Christians and some of them reject it? Uh, or maybe it's a sibling thing or a parent thing, like we were all raised in the same house, we all heard the same stuff growing up, we're similar, similar temperaments, same kind of people. Why did I believe this stuff, but they didn't. Or maybe you're that sibling here because you're curious, because your friend, a roommate, a parent, a brother, sister, it seems like God to them is alive. It, it means something. It affects their life. But for you, you feel like you're dead and you're wondering, but we're like the same person. We heard all the same stuff. Why is it different for them than it is for me? Um, and, and Paul, in a sense, that's the dilemma that Paul is wrestling with is if Jesus is the king, if he is in control, then why are so many of my friends and my family and my people turning their back on him? Uh, which we could say about this campus, if Jesus really is the one true and living God, if he really is the only way, if he really is fully in control, how is it that so many people can ignore him uh, and kind of like just have a nonchalant attitude toward him? Doesn't that dynamic kind of make us question, is he really that powerful? Is he really in control? Can he be if so many people, uh, in a sense, can turn their backs uh, on him? And again, that's the dilemma that Paul's kind of bringing to our attention. That's what kind of causes the turbulence uh, from the airplane uh, that he has here. Um, and the question that comes into our mind is, is Jesus powerless? Is that the reason why more people don't believe? Or is the Bible just not convincing enough? Maybe there's too many holes in it or too many uh, contradictions or something. And so it's just not persuasive enough. Maybe if God took a second stab at revealing himself, maybe it'd be a little better. Well, Paul says, no, it's not because Jesus is powerless. No, it's not because the Bible um, has holes in it or isn't persuasive. So then we might say, well, maybe it's because the people who had eventually become Christians, they kind of came out of the womb with a leg up on everybody else. Maybe they were smarter Maybe they were just spiritual people. They were more connected to God. 
more moral, maybe a quieter temperament or something. They had, they had better chances. And so uh, they were the ones who eventually became Christians. And Paul says, no, it's not that either. The explanation for why some believe and some don't isn't any of those things. It's actually this. It is that God says he has mercy on those he has mercy on. And he hardens those he hardens. It's verse 16. Salvation does not depend on our will or our desires or our efforts. But it depends on God's mercy. Now you know why I said this is hard stuff? Does that seem a little bit confusing based on everything else we've been saying for the past month? Everything Paul's been saying for the past month? These are the three quick things I want to show you. Uh, Point one is the longest of the three, and so don't think when we get to point two that you have another point one coming. But the first is this. We only choose God because he chose us. All right, I wrote these on your bulletin so they can make more sense to you. We only choose God because he already chose us. The second thing we'll look at is God chooses us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. There's nothing in you, nothing in me, that gets God's attention. Uh, He puts our attention on us because of who he is. And the third thing is this. This, everything Paul's talking about, leaves all of us, both Christians and non-Christians, believe it or not, humbled and hopeful. Okay, so that's kind of where we're going to go in the next few minutes. The first point I wanted to talk about was that if you're a Christian... We only choose God because he first uh, chose us. God doesn't leave anything to chance. There are no accidents. There's no kind of him sitting back and watching history unwind and say, oh, what's this person going to do? What's that person going to do? Oh, okay, let me go catch up. Uh, He doesn't leave anything to accident. A couple of weeks ago we said that the word predestined that Paul uses here actually means he writes the end of the story before the beginning. He's already determined your future. He's already written the last chapter, and it's a chapter of life forever with him. Um, That's what Paul's talking about here. Um, And so you can basically say that uh, God always makes the first move. He always makes the first move when it comes to rescuing his people. We never, ever, in any way, at any point, at any point, ever beat him to the punch or make the first move. He is always on the scene Uh, before we are. Um, And one of the ways that uh, I've gotten to see some of this dynamic play out of God being really the one who has chosen us, and that's kind of what enables us to even choose him or see him as beautiful, uh, is this. I've thought a lot the past month that I've got the best job in the world. Um, During the past month, I've told people, I don't know if God is more at work in many of you, or if I just have eyes to see it differently now. But I've been meeting up with a lot of y'all, and in small ways or in big ways, uh, Jesus is making you new. Uh, And it's been fascinating to see. And even for some of you, he's actually brought you from death to life recently. Uh, And this has been amazing for me to see, because I hear you telling me the story of of these changes that are happening in you. And as you try to wrap your head around it, um, it's 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 a night and day difference between the way you were and the way you are. Um, and at this kind of level of maybe, maybe you're an infant or a toddler in Jesus and you factor really big in your story right now because you tell me about the prayers that you've prayed and the feelings that you have towards God now, the books you've read and the dots that you've connected and how amazing it is 
And you haven't meant it in an arrogant or cocky way, like, look at me. Uh, But the reason I smile and the reason those tiny little comments you make uh, affect me so much is because I know that behind all of your actions, behind all of those things that you did do, prayers you did pray, uh, decisions you did make, uh, I know that that God has been on the move uh, before you. And I know that you only have eyes to see him uh, because he saw you first. You only have a heart to love him because he loved you first. And so though you factor really big in your story right now, in your perception of what's going on in your life, uh, there will come a day where God will factor in a towering way. Because you will begin to see, he will begin to show you what Paul's talking about here. uh, That God is the one who's been making all of this happen. Uh, And so there's a way in which uh, early on in the Christian life, we think, I'm a Christian because I decided to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm a Christian because someone preached the gospel to me and I found it persuasive and I believed. Or I'm a Christian because I went to this camp or had this experience. And it's us. But Paul's saying, zoom out and look at the backdrop. You didn't become a Christian in a sense in that moment that you prayed. The moment was actually much bigger. Ephesians 1 says, before God said, let there be light, he set his love on you. The chase began. It reverse engineering every detail of your life to bring you to a point that he would give you eyes to see him as he is. His beauty is irresistible. Um, When you have eyes to see God as he is, you will not turn away from him. He is that beautiful. He is that good. He is that loving. And so he works everything to the point that he opens your eyes simply to see him as he is. And so, as I said a second ago, the only reason we chose to love him, follow him, give our life to him, is because he first chose you, first pursued you, first set his love on you, and first gave his life for you. And in a sense, it was his choosing you that made you able to choose him. Left to ourselves, this is why this matters. This is why there's actually no other possible way that a person could become saved. Or reconciled to God. Do you remember what we talked about? For some of you, you were here all the way back in August. We talked about Romans 1, Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 6. All these different places where Paul repeatedly says, we are not born alive spiritually. We are people who are born dead. We are not people who are born free. We are people born, what does he say in Romans 5 and 6 repeatedly? Enslaved to sin. And to evil. And so, this notion of free will, the way we usually talk about it, you won't find it in the Bible. The Bible says the opposite. We weren't born with free will. Our wills were born absolutely enslaved to the things we love, which is mostly self, which is sin, which is evil. Um, And so, unless God breaks into those loves, breaks into that slavery and that death, and makes us alive, Uh, There is no waking up to God. Uh, There is no kind of gradual progression towards Him. It's just a gradual progression uh, away from Him. Here's an example to to kind of show you what I'm talking about. I've noticed over the years that dead people have a bad habit of staying dead. They have a bad track record of resuscitating themselves. 
The question the Bible asks you is, are we born dead or are we born sick? Because if we're born sick, there's a possibility of self-healing. You could be smart enough or faithful enough or disciplined enough or spiritual enough to get your act together and to begin to say things like, you know, God, I've been thinking, I've been far from you, and I really want to be close to you, so will you save me? Um, You would be able to do that if you were born a sick person, not a dead person. But what if you're a dead person? Dead people don't talk. Dead people don't see. Dead people don't feel. You can put a 50-pound weight, someone on the morgue, and they're not going to feel a thing. They're completely lifeless. So if the Bible is telling the truth when it says that we're born dead, my question to you is, then how do you ever get to the point of crying out for mercy? How do you ever get to the point of feeling the weight of sin? Feeling your death, even being aware of it, if you're dead. It lights out completely in every facet of our lives unless someone comes and resuscitates you. That's a very different thing than a sick person kind of taking some medicine and getting better on their own. Because when someone dies and the life passes out of them, their only hope is someone completely outside of them who has the power to come and make them alive again. One who has life breathes life into them. That's how they come back to life. And so Paul is pushing this question of what's the order, what's the timing of a person becoming a Christian? Is it you choose to follow God and then God says, man, that's awesome news. I am really excited. I've been waiting to hear that for a long time. Because you've chosen to follow me, I'm choosing to give you grace now and to forgive all your sins and make you completely new. Is that the order? Or is it actually reversed? Because God has chosen you before the foundations of the earth, meaning he planned your salvation before he planted the world. Is that the the order? Because he chose you, you chose him. Or is it because you chose him, he chose you? Paul is pretty blatant here, isn't he? The whole Bible is blatant here. Literally from Genesis to Revelation, in every book in between, these themes come up of who is doing the saving, us saving ourselves, or God in grace kind of pursuing us because we're not able uh, to save ourselves. Okay, that's kind of logical head stuff here. Let me bring this down to earth because you should be saying, if you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian, you should be saying, okay, Ben, but we still do something, right? Like, why do all these preachers always say, if you don't uh, know Jesus, he says, come to him. You are weary and heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Come to him, pray to him. Are you still supposed to do that, or is that just a bunch of nonsense? It's, it's both and. Uh, here's, here's what I mean. There's an old story of, uh, of this hymn that actually I began singing the second version of this. I'll tell you in a second. But the hymn was originally written by some people who witnessed the death of an Indian Christian. This guy was in northern India. Uh, He was in in a village where the tribe that was in power had no tolerance for anyone converting out of kind of the religion of that village and anything else. And so the tribal elders came to this guy and his family. They lined up his two sons and his wife. And they said, will you deny Jesus? I mean, he said no. And they drew back two arrows aimed at these two kids and they said will you deny him now and come back to what this village believes and he said no 
and the, and the, uh, the tribal elders shot the two kids, and they brought his wife out next. And they said, will you deny Jesus now and return to what you believed before? And the, the words that the witnesses recorded hearing from him were these, and they turned it into a hymn. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. The tribe obviously put his wife and him to death, which is why this story made it out of a tiny village and onto hymn books across the world. Is that true? Did he decide to follow Jesus? Or is that him kind of not biblical? It's actually very true. But it's half the truth. Uh, and I think a lot of us, our, our view of the gospel is very tiny because we think it's all about something I decided to do one day. This is how that hymn was rewritten. And this is how the first way I heard it at church one day. Some people took this hymn and rewrote it to tell the other side of the story. This is what they said. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. I never wanted to follow Jesus. He rescued me. He rescued me. No turning back. Those are the two sides of the gospel. My question to you earlier is what's the timing and what's the order and does it matter? Do you see why it matters? Is God responding to something you took initiative to do or did God make the first move in your life? Did he start this process or did you? Yes, we've decided to Jesus, decided to follow Jesus, but only because he's rescued us and only because he chose us. Really quickly before we knock out these last two points, Paul knows if you're hearing him, you're either going to be pissed off or you're going to be confused and you're going to think this isn't fair. Because he says it, I think in verse 12 or verse 14, he says, is God unjust? This choosing thing? That God is choosing some but not choosing everybody. And Paul begins to go into this potter metaphor, this clay thing. And Paul says the hardest thing a human being has ever had to hear, which is this. You are not God. We are creatures. We are clay, not potters. We're really not in control of anything. We are molded. Uh, and Paul starts there, where he says, who are we? Little, broken, bent, corrupt creatures to question the Holy One, the Good One, the Resuscitator. That's where he starts. But then he gives us a little bit more. He says, what is fairness? Fairness would be if God kind of washed his hands of humanity and walked away and said, I'm going to start over. Grace is when God sees humanity spiraling out of control and moves towards it, not away from it. Begins to resuscitate dead people, not say, sucks for you, you should have obeyed. The gospel is that God saw a world full of spiritual corpses and took a step towards it. Made the first move, chose to resuscitate. Is that fair? No, it's not fair. That's mercy. But did God, was God responsible, obligated to save everybody? Did he have to choose everybody? Well, Paul says in, in, verse, uh, in chapter 11, at the very last verse of this, hey, if God's obligated to do that, it's not grace anymore, it's works. 
Uh, if God, it, there's no obligation on God's part to, sh to show salvation to anybody because we're rebels. We've, we've pushed back against him. He chooses in mercy and in kindness that is completely unwarranted and undeserved to move towards his people that he's chosen uh, and to make us alive. Uh, he, is not, he doesn't owe mercy to anybody. And this is deeply, deeply humbling to us. Last objection, does this really matter, or can I go on believing what I'd heard before, which is we have free will, we decide, we kind of hold all the cards, and when we want to play the ace and say, Lord, I believe, game's over, we win all the money. Do, does it matter that we listen to this? Though it's hard, though it absolutely leaves mystery and confusion, I think absolutely we have to wrestle with this. We have to hear it, not just because God said it, but because Paul says this is the only way that salvation by grace happens. Every other way is by works. Something about you that made you more attractive to God. Something in you, your pedigree, your intelligence, your morality, your spirituality, your temperament caught God's eye. And he loved you and said, you know, you're a pretty good guy or a pretty good girl. I'm going to save you. That is salvation by works. That is not Christianity. It is what the Bible spends every last page chopping down because it kills people. And so this is very important stuff. I told you points two and three come quickly and flow out of what we've already, the groundwork we've already laid. The first point is that God, we only choose God because he already chose us. The second point is this. He cho God chooses us because of who he is, not because of who we are. And so you ask the question, what's special about those who are chosen? Why them and not other people? Uh, where is the motive for God choosing someone over another person? Or electing some person or predestining them and not another person? It's not in us. Uh, meaning that it's nothing that I just said a second ago. It's not intelligence, spirituality, how you were raised, what country in the world you grew up, whether it's a Christian country or a Muslim country. None of those things have anything to do with why God chooses to, to save uh, his people. The motive for his action is located in him, not in any of us. Meaning there's nothing about me, there's nothing in me that caught God's attention. That is humbling, and that helps me love people better, and it knocks me back down to level ground with every other human being. Because I look at every other human being, every kind of sinner, every other religion, and I say, you and I are no different. I'm just as helpless as you. As you. I'm just as hopeless as you, apart from the resuscitator of moving towards me and making me new. Paul gives us a few examples real quick. Why does God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why Isaac and not Ishmael? Why does God say, I have mercy on whom I have mercy? Well, Paul's kind of pulling out some examples from Israel's past. That's why it might not make sense if you're not familiar with the Bible. Again, it's fine. But he's pulling examples that these people would have known about. And Paul's saying, let me prove it to you. Before Jacob or Esau had spent a day on earth, had done a single thing, God had chosen. Um, not because of he like foresaw what Jacob and Esau were going to do. Jacob, whom he loved and chose, was a shady dude. He was a liar. He was a deceiver. He was a manipulator. He, he basically threw his brother under the bus 
Um, and, and, and Esau was just a shady, if not more. It's not like Jacob was the good boy, so God chose him. Uh, but he says, so that God's purposes in election might stand before either of them were born or had done a thing. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, hated here doesn't mean what we use the word to mean. Hated, in a sense, is the same way where Jesus says, unless you hate your mom and dad, you can't follow me. He doesn't want you to go hate your parents. He's saying, unless you kind of pass beyond them, unless you move on, you can't follow me. And so Jacob I loved, but Esau I passed over. Again, he's proving there was nothing in Jacob uh, that made God pay attention to him. What made God pay attention to Jacob was something in God. I hesitated to tell you this next story uh, because it's uh, kind of a controversial thing right now. Uh, and hear me out. I'm going to give you a little qualification before I say this. Uh, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey, I was talking about it with a freshman Bible study last night. Uh, and I was asking them, why has this movie broken record upon record upon record? It's only been out a couple of days. But around the globe, uh, people by the scores of millions are going to see this. Over 100 million people bought the book or ripped it off some counterfeit sites. My question was, why is it so appealing? Now, I'm not about to endorse this or necessarily say you should go see it. I'm going to say this as an, as an aside. Some of us need to be more discerning in the movies we see. We need to be thoughtful. But some of us also need to be more discerning in our knee-jerk reactions to movies. Christians need to be saying more about this kind of stuff than just sign this petition to ban this movie. There, it, it's possible there could be something worthy of affirming here. And that's what I'm going to suggest to you. Uh, and so this is not an endorsement to go see it, necessarily. Uh, actually, I think there's a lot of disturbing things in there that might make life harder for you and faithfulness with Jesus a lot harder with you. Uh, things you can't get out of your eyes or your mind if you see it. But I think uh, from what I've read of the reaction to it, um, my curiosity is why for a movie that's gotten ripped apart by the critics as being bad acting, bad writing, why is it smashing records left and right? Why are human beings flocking to see this? Here's my guess. It's not just the sex. I hate to be brutally honest, but porn is a lot easily, more easily accessible than paying $11 and going to the theater. I don't think it's because of the writing, because people across the board say it's really poorly written. I think it's the plot line, which basically goes like this. It's a woman who um, basically is changed by the love of this Christian Grey character because she is so aware of how unworthy, how ugly, how full of places she doesn't measure up, places that there's no reason a guy like this should have any attention for her or affection in her. Here's why I think this is appealing to humanity. You are scared of other people loving you, and here's the reason why. Because you, you're afraid of their motive to love, for loving you being in you. Here's why we're afraid. What if they find someone more interesting than me? What if I let them down? What happens when I fail this person? What happens when they get bored with me? What happens when they move on? Do you see what happens when, when someone's motive for loving me is in me? I die a thousand deaths of anxiety and insecurity because I know I'm going to let you down and fail you. What we yearn for and long for is someone to love us where their motive in loving us isn't in me, but it's in them. 
because of their love of you for reasons that are in them, it's like shock absorbers to every time you fail them, let them down, bore them. They continue to love you because the motive's not in you, it's in them. I read a review that said this, the success of both Twilight and Fifty Shades of Grey seems to come from the battle that rages in every human heart from the day we emerge into the world screaming, nakeless, naked and helpless. On the one hand, we all want to be deeply loved for who we are. But on the other hand, we see ourselves as pathetically unworthy. The guy goes on to say, this plot line of Fifty Shades of Grey is Christianity's turf. And he said, we can tell the story better. And so he said, instead of just bashing the movie, let's tell the story better. That there is one who has chosen to love because of what's in him, which is love, which is mercy, which is grace, which is glory, which frees him to love you when you let him down, when you fail him, uh, when you're insecure, when you backslide. His love continues, and so we don't have to be terrified that God's going to pack up and run. Because electing love, this kind of predestining love, this choosing love is a love where the motive is not in you. It's all in him. We need to finish. Um, I will, will, I'll basically just say the last point, that this actually humbles us. And it makes us very different people than the two street preachers, Monday and Tuesday in front of Corbett, who are shouting, whore, whore, and shouting, you deserve hell. Those people truly believe deep down that God's motive for loving them is in them. They're smarter, they're better than you, they're more serious about God than you, and that's why they can point their finger and scorn you. Christians, Paul is saying, are humbled because they know there is nothing about Ben Coppage that has warranted this God coming to me in love, making me new, changing the tragedy of my life, uh, into life forever with him. It humbles us, it gives us hope, and it changes us in that way. So if you don't know God, are you supposed to go home like I went home in college when I heard about this the first time and spent the next four months terrified, saying, I don't believe in Jesus right now, so does that mean he didn't choose me and I'm just screwed? What's the point? Because I'm not a Christian and Ben just said, or Paul just said, that God chooses those who will believe in him. That is not how you're supposed to go home. Uh, that is, you are supposed to go home having burning in the forefront of your mind that, that, that the God who is is a resuscitating God. He is a God who has overcome your obstacle to life with him, which is your death, your inability to do a single thing about your predicament. He has overcome that by choosing and by making us alive I've heard this illustration said, it's a fitting place to end. The, on the outside of the door of heaven there are written these words, Whosoever will may come to Jesus, which is Revelation 22. But upon entering those doors of whosoever wills, whoever wants Jesus may come to me, as we walk into the doors and look at the backside of the doors, it says, chosen from before the foundations of the world. Paul isn't trying to exclude some of you and saying, you know what, you shouldn't come to RUF or church anymore because God's chosen his team and you're not on it. He's saying, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Come to Him because Jesus invites you to Himself. But when you begin to think about God more and see Him as beautiful and your heart warms to Him, know this. He made the first move. He loved you first. He chose you first. He pursued you first. And that humbles you and makes you love Him all the more. And so whether you know God or not, this is a passage that humbles us and makes us hopeful. Let's pray that He would help us do those things. Lord Jesus, this is a hard passage to preach. It's a hard passage to hear. It's just hard to unravel. And so we pray that in your mercy you would untangle the knots that are still in our heads. Make sense of this as I asked earlier. Uh, Persuade us of your pursuing, chasing love. Uh, We are either dead people in need of resuscitation. Or we are people who are alive who need to be reminded that it is all of grace. Nothing of our own merit, nothing of our own doing. Would you have mercy on us and do these things for us in your name. Amen.